All right, we are continuing our march through 1 Corinthians. We start 15, chapter 15 today. We're almost done. It's been almost a year. A few breaks in there, but we're almost done. Now, as we start chapter 15, um, I needed to make a, a decision here because chapter 15 is, is largely about the resurrection. The resurrection, first and foremost, Jesus' resurrection from the dead, but then also um, that as a forerunner to our own resurrection to come in the future. Well, as you know, Easter is coming up, and which is largely about the resurrection. So the decision was, do we put off chapter 15 for a few weeks and line everything up there perfectly, or do we just march through and that's the way things lined up um, and finish 1 Corinthians right before Easter and then start something new after that. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to press on. And so you can kind of see this as preparation for Easter, um, giving you a chance to consider, behold, reflect on the, the wonder of the resurrection um, and what God did in that. So today we're going to cover the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is transitioning topics here from, as most of you know, we just spent two, three chapters, a number of weeks on uh, spiritual gifts. Paul transitions here, and um, these verses that we, that we get here first kind of set the stage for what is to come in this very long chapter. Chapter 15 is very long. All right, so look at the first couple verses with me. Now, I, I would remind you, brothers of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So Paul is needing to remind the Corinthians of the truth that he proclaimed to them and, and what they believed, the truth of the gospel, as he says here, for reasons that will become clear as we go through uh, this chapter. So we're not going to get to verse 12 today, but in verse 12, we see that some in Corinth were saying that there was no resurrection from the dead, no resurrection to come, that whatever hope God's people have in him is not a hope that extends beyond this life. It is for this life only. Whatever change God brings, it is just change in this life only. And Paul will go on very clearly to say that if this is true, if we has, have hope in this life only, the bottom falls out of, of, of our faith, of God's salvation. We, so in verse 19, he says, if, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Because if there's no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ was raised from the dead. And then he says, we are still in our sins. And so the context for this part of the letter is that Paul is concerned about the Corinthians straying from some, uh, some of the central beliefs and hope of Christianity. And so he begins by reminding them of what he had taught them at the first and what they had believed. And in this, as in the verses we look at today, we get one of the clearest summaries of the gospel in all of the Bible. 
Now, I want to be careful not to just throw around like Christian jargon and Christianese without giving some explanation. So the gospel is, is a biblical word, but it's one that can often just get thrown around and we just assume everyone knows what we're talking about. So the word gospel means good news, and it refers to the central message of Christianity, the, the truth that God has made known in and through Jesus, which we must believe and, and he respond to if we are to have any hope in this life. Um, many of you have gone through our Roots 101 class, and you know the first week, the first of the four weeks we spend talking about the gospel and unpacking it, um, and also talking about what are false gospels out there. And then many of you also know that when we meet with many of you who are desiring to become members, we ask you to briefly explain the gospel. And if you are new to Christianity or to the church, if you are unsure about what all of this is about, we would have you consider first and foremost this gospel message. But even if you've been a Christian for a long time, we would have you consider again and perhaps anew this gospel. Uh, because as Paul says here, it is that in which you stand, even now, by which you are being saved if you hold fast to it. So there is ongoing purpose to the gospel and our clinging to it. So what is the gospel? Well, before we look at Paul's summary, it'd be helpful to consider a few false or incomplete gospels common in our day. So, for example, we might think that the gospel is simply the message that God loves us, that God loves you. In many places today, it can seem like that's the totality of the message. Well, it is, of course, true that God loves you, but that's not the gospel. That message alone is not sufficient to bring about the change we need in our relationship with God. Because it's also true that on our own, apart from a change in heart, we are set in opposition to God and his loving rule. And because of this, deserve his just judgment. In other words, simply the realization that God is love and God is loving doesn't negate that God is also just and righteous and perfect in his judgments, which apart from Christ stand against us. So the gospel is not simply God loves you, so don't worry about anything. Don't take any steps to be reconciled with him. He just loves you as you are, and that's enough. If that's enough, then Jesus died for nothing. So that's an insufficient gospel, as, as true as that is. Secondly, we might think that the gospel is the message that God is going to renew the world and make everything right in the end. Again, that's true. But it's not enough to simply hear the news that God is going to make everything right in the end. Because unless we are reconciled to him, unless our sinful opposition to him is overcome, this making everything right is not good news to us. Another one, we might think that the gospel is the message that if you adhere to right doctrine and beliefs, you will be saved. So all that matters is that you give mental assent to some facts about God. Now, 
While we should certainly make sure that our beliefs are right and biblical, and the gospel does include believing certain facts about God, it involves more than that. Um, Jesus speaks to some who had great doctrine in in his day. In John 5, he says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So you and I must not just adhere to certain beliefs. We must actually come as an act of our will to Jesus and give our whole selves to him, cast ourselves on him, cling to him, and the salvation that is in him. Lastly, we might perhaps think that the gospel is just the idea that Jesus can help our life out somehow. He can, su- he can make our life better. He has some teaching and some wisdom and commands that are helpful, and if we latch on to them, our life won't be so bad. Again, there is some truth in this, Jesus does come to give us, he says, abundant life. He does come and he wants joy and peace and comfort and hope for us. But this in itself is not the gospel. Jesus does not come. He did not come merely to give us some life hacks to make our life better. He calls us to come to him for salvation, even to die to ourselves and find new life in him. And we could go on, and there are lots of ways that our hearts distort the gospel to be less than what it actually is, in ways that we don't actually need to rely on God and what he's done for us. So what is the gospel? Let's read through the rest of this passage, and then we'll, we'll unpack what it says. So starting at verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So Paul, we'll go on here, but Paul takes this opportunity to remind them of his uh, apostleship. That is his his role as one who proclaimed the gospel to the, the Corinthians and planted the church among them. And several times throughout this letter, we see Paul gently asserting his influence and authority over the Corinthians. Not in a heavy-handed way, not in a way that's ultimately about him, but in an attempt to call them back to faithfulness. Um, You might think of a a parent, uh, a parent of an an older child, a teenager, a young adult, um, that is, the child is rejecting their authority and making some harmful decisions. And so the parent could say, well, I'm your father, I'm your mother, listen to me. But that might not go over the best. A more wise parent of an older child might begin to plead with them. I brought you into this world. I fed you. I protected you. 
As you grew up, I raised you, I taught you what is right from wrong, I've stuck with you through the good and the bad. You are here today in large part because of me, or at least God's work in and through me. And now you want to turn not just from me, but from the good and right way that I've shown you? And this is, this is what Paul is doing throughout this letter. He's pleading with the Corinthians to not just reject him and his teaching, but in that to also, uh, to also be rejecting the gospel. And so you see this a little bit here as Paul goes on in verse 9. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. And then in the last verse here we'll look at today, he, he returns to his main point, reminding them of what they had received and believed in. So whether it was, they, it was I or they, these other apostles, so we preach and so you believed. In other words, remember. Remember what you believed? Remember what I taught, what you clung to? I'm pleading with you to continue in that, lest it be in vain. So what is this that he's pleading with them about? What is this gospel? Paul lays it out in a very in a few very clear statements. This is a very clear summary of the gospel. First, Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. You see the same truth throughout Scripture in many places. For example, Peter writes, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. I mean, that's a... That's a significant statement. Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Um, in the book of Revelation, John has this vision of the throne room of God and those around the throne are singing to the lamb who is, is a, a picture of Jesus in, in this vision. And they say, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And then one other example, Jesus, before his death, helps his disciples understand what's about to happen. Helps his disciples understand the meaning of his death and resurrection and intangible images of bread and wine as we celebrate each week in communion. And he says to them, this is my body given for you, and this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So what are all these passages telling us? Well, it's not simply that Jesus died. Like, we're not simply saying that there was this man 2,000 years ago named Jesus, lived for a while, and then died. I mean, it makes no significant difference if you, meet, if you believe that there was a man named Abraham Lincoln who lived a while ago and, and then died as a fact of history. Now, what these verses are saying is that Christ not only died, but he died 
for a purpose. He died for our sins, for my sins, which means a few things. It means that our sins required a death, and a death in the sense of eternal separation from God and his goodness. In Romans, we read, for the wages of sin is death. In other words, the, the result, the, the right and fair result and wage of sin against our holy creator God is death. And, and, and death as a form of just judgment. And it's helpful to acknowledge that this is really hard for us to hear and accept, at least in a full sense. We are taught to believe that we deserve life and liberty and happiness. And I, we think of this, it seems, not only as a right in our country and from our government, but also as a right from God. We think the baseline starting point that we are promised, that is ours by right, is a long, full, and satisfying life. Does not that thinking have some hold in your heart and mind? But this is actually antithetical to the biblical message that everything that is exists by and for God. That everything revolves around God, that he is the center and the purpose and end of all things, that all that is good and true and right flows from him and yet we, apart from his intervention, ignore him and live for ourselves. We would rather be God than God. So Christ died for our sins, in part, means that our sins are a serious and weighty thing. We aren't naturally just all good with God. We are born into sin and quickly prove that that, was, that is correct as every parent knows. Now, this part of the gospel is, obviously, it does not sound like good news. And there has long been a push to minimize or to reinterpret the cross. So, some would say, perhaps the cross is just a message about God's love. And it is a message about God's love, of course, that, that is true. But it isn't also a payment for sin. It isn't Christ substituting himself, God substituting himself in place of our sin and guilt. It isn't a message about the, the seriousness of our sin. Well, that would be much easier to swallow if the cross was just a message about God loving us. That would be much easier to swallow for prideful people like ourselves. Perhaps you've been told that the path to a better more satisfying life to better self-esteem and happiness is to only think positive thoughts of yourself. And all of this seems absolutely crazy. Perhaps the idea that you are a sinner in desperate need of a salvation that you can do nothing about sounds like self-harm. The, the epitome of foolishness. Why would anyone go down that road? How's that working out for us? How's that working out for our society, for our world? There is a path to abundant life, to joy and peace and comfort 
and a secure and stable identity and worth. And it is absolutely clear that God wants that for us. But it doesn't come from putting hope in ourselves. That we're okay on our own. But from putting our hope in God and his tender and sufficient mercy towards sinners like us. It doesn't come from justifying ourselves before God but embracing and accepting his justification of us. It doesn't come from turning, it comes from turning from our myriad and endless attempts to atone for our own sin or deny that it exists and embracing God's perfect once-for-all atonement as Christ dies for our sins. Christ died for our sins. Now, a second thing that this teaches us is that we have to believe something about Christ, about who Christ is, because no mere man could die for the sins of the world, could sufficiently and justly bear the punishment of the sins of the world. I can't come up to you and say, I forgive you for your sins committed against God. Only God can do that. Only God can forgive sin against God. And for him to do so in a just way, that doesn't diminish his perfections, diminish his justice, diminish his commitment to what is right. There needs to be a making of things right. There needs to be an atonement. Uh, one theologian put it in this kind of language. He says, on the cross, the just God justly justifies the unjust. On the cross, the just God justly justifies the unjust. He does so in a way that keeps his justice. For God to merely excuse or just pass over sin would not be just, would not be right, would not make him worthy of worship. And so the cross, God does this in a way that the unjust are justified and he remains just. Or to put it in another way, on the cross, God's perfections, his Righteousness and holiness and justice are not minimized in an inch in any way. And yet, the tender mercy and compassion and humility of God is filled to overflowing, completely satisfying all the demands of his justice. The Bible sums this up by saying salvation is of the Lord. In other words, salvation is something God does for us. And there is no adding to it. But he does it completely as Jesus dies for our sins. As Paul goes on here, he says that this message is according, in accordance with the scriptures. Notice he says that a couple times. Um, so all that God did in Jesus was in accordance with, with what God had planned from the very beginning and what God had revealed in many ways through his word. There is a unity to the Bible. There's a unity. It is one grand story pointing forward to Jesus, flowing out from Jesus and his death and resurrection. Now, resurrection. We haven't gotten there yet. Verse 4. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. 
So while Scripture does put the emphasis on Christ's death for securing our salvation, his resurrection is absolutely essential, and so is our belief in it. For one, his resurrection confirms his identity, that he was not just any other man, no, that he was God, he could not stay dead. Secondly, Jesus' resurrection confirms that his death was successful. It accomplished the ends for which it, it happened. If he had stayed dead, as Paul will say here, we would still be in our sins. His resurrection is like the exclamation point, the victory lap, the fireworks that confirm his death and sin defeating, his sin and death defeating death. It shows us that Jesus really did overcome sin, death, and hell, not just for himself, but for us. And finally, Jesus' resurrection is a precursor, a first fruit, a sign pointing towards our own resurrection or the resurrection of God's people to come. This will be Paul's point as he continues through this chapter as we go on in the coming weeks. Just as Christ was raised from the dead and made alive, so will his people be raised from the dead and made alive. Now, you might have noticed that Paul goes into, Paul is very intent to show that Jesus really rose from the dead and he really did it in a physical, bodily way. That his death and resurrection was not simply some kind of spiritual, metaphysical, metaphorical death and resurrection. No, Paul says very explicitly, he, his body went into the ground, he was raised, and then he was seen, not as a spirit, but seen physically, bodily, by more than 500 people. Now, you don't say that this guy, Jesus, died and rose again, and he was seen by over 500 people. Oh, and many of them are still alive. Oh, no, here, here are some of their names, if that didn't actually happen. Like, Paul's basically saying, go, go check it out. Go find these people. Like, everyone knew who these people were, Peter, and go find them and ask them about this. This is great evidence for the truth of the resurrection. And likewise, as we think in and hope for the resurrection of God's people to come, we are not hoping to merely attain to some spiritual, non-physical renewal, whether emotionally, psychologically, mentally, or whatever, but to real bodily resurrection from the dead into life eternal. And that's what the rest of this chapter will go on to. So to sum this up, the gospel message, the gospel is a message, a word, an announcement of what God has done. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now we need to say a bit more because we have a responsibility. We must hear and respond to this message by faith. We must personally confess our sin and need before God and trust His life, death, and resurrection is for us. And we do this in, as we do this in true faith and repentance. We are 
a, a real change happens. We are reconciled to God. We are made his, we are made right with him, covered once and for all by his blood and changed as his spirit indwells us. And we, there is the temptation, the tendency to think that this is just a one-time event. The moment we first trust in Christ and are born again and converted and changed. And yes, that, that often happens in one time and place. But if we go back to verses 1 and 2, we see that Paul is concerned that, that while the Corinthians originally held on to this, they were in danger of straying from it and they're in danger of their faith being in vain. So look at these verse, two verses again with me. It says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Do you notice the past, present, and future aspects to this? So, I imagine for most of you, there was some time in the past where you initially latched on to, you heard the gospel, and you received it by faith. Even if you grew up in the church, and you, that's what you've always known, there still must be a personal clinging to, holding on to that by faith. If this is true of you, it means that now, in the present, you stand in, you stand on the gospel in Christ in a day-by-day -day ongoing sense, that in, in such a way that that is your identity. That's who you are. You are not the sum of your failures, of your sins, of your insecurities and doubts and weaknesses. You do not stand in your sin. You, do not, you stand in the gospel covered and washed by the blood of Christ on your worst days as much as on your best days. And then looking towards the future, this gospel is the hope for what is to come. You don't have hope because of how you're doing right now. Your, your hope is not in how you're performing or keeping up, how little you're struggling with sin and temptation. Your hope is in what God has done for you through the gospel. And so this means that the most important part of making it to the end, which Paul is warning the Corinthians to, to do, is that you continue to cling day by day to the hope and promises of God in the gospel. That you do more looking up, beholding the truth of God, than you do looking in. And so Paul's appeals to the Corinthians is what God would appeal to us as well. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, whether you're first hearing the gospel or first coming to grips with it or have been clinging to it for decades, continue to stand into it, stand in it, hold fast to it, lest you are found to have believed in vain. It is true Christ is holding on to you. If you are his, he will not lose those who are his. But one of the ways that he does this is as he strengthens us to keep going. And as we do this, we prove that we are his, that he is clinging to us. Let's pray.